Hi, it's Fraser here. And it's Tom. Two thirds of the Spike podcast. I know we say this every week, but before today's episode, we just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who donates to us. Spiked is free. We want to keep it free and it's donations that allow us to do that. One-off donations are absolutely brilliant, but the best way you can help us is by giving a monthly donation. Even something like £5 a month can make the world of difference to us at Spiked. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com, hit the big red donate button in the top right of the homepage and just fill in your details. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me today we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And no Ella Whelan this week, so we have Spikes editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. Coming up, no Brexit this week, but we're joined by Spikes US correspondent Sean Collins to talk about Trump's impeachment. And we'll also discuss the royal war on the press and how the OK hand gesture became a hate symbol. I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. What I did in Ukraine was carry out the official policy the United States government. What did you want President Zelensky to do about Vice President Biden and his son, Hunter? Biden and his son are stone-cold crooked. A formal impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump following the revelation that Trump repeatedly pushed for Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky to investigate Joe Biden and his son, Hunter, has been launched. The Democrats hope to charge Trump with betraying his oath of office and the nation's security by seeking to enlist a foreign power to tarnish a rival for his own political gain. Joining us down the line for this part of the show is Spike's US correspondent, Sean Collins. Sean, can you tell us a bit about how we got to this point? Well, I think the immediate cause was the whistle, a whistleblower within the intelligence community had come forward to say that um, he had found uh, evidence from, in particular, a call between Trump and the leader of Ukraine, where Trump had pressured the leader to undertake a number of investigations, including one of Joe Biden, Democratic candidate for, for president in the upcoming 2020 election. And fairly quickly after that, Trump released a rough transcript of that call, thinking that it would dampen things down, but it it didn't. And Nancy Pelosi, the leader of the Democrats in the House, opened an official impeachment inquiry. Now, that's the kind of immediate cause. I mean, the thing is, is that the Democrats have been for years, in fact, since the day that Trump was inaugurated, Mm. have sought to impeach Trump. And this is, uh, in particular, the the Mueller inquiry was seen as a hope to bring Trump down eventually. That fell flat. So this is now, the Democrats believe, they found uh, a good reason to impeach Trump. And for you, um, does this kind of behavior warrant this inquiry? What's what's your kind of take on that? Well, I don't think what uh, Trump did was proper. But I don't, and I do think that it warrants investigation, but I don't think it is uh, serious enough to lead to impeachment. So let, let me just say a little bit about that. I mean, I think that in terms of what Trump did, it was wrong for him to use the power of the presidency to be seen to be trying to harm a political rival in this way, in particular using 
a foreign nation. I mean, if you think about it, one thing that Trump all the time during the Mueller investigation was saying is that I did not collude with Russia. I was not inviting Russia to interfere in our election. And now, you know, it appears as if in the case of the Ukraine, he might have been. And then, you know, you have Rudy Giuliani, his personal lawyer, who, who Trump is saying should work with the leader of Ukraine on this. And so, you know, on the face of it, I mean, obviously we don't know the whole story yet, but on the face of it, it does appear as if that that's not proper. But on the other hand, I think it's wrong for the Democrats to then just jump to impeachment. They didn't necessarily have to do this. I mean, they're presenting it as, well, we're forced to do this. They weren't at all forced to do this. It doesn't really rise to the seriousness of what they, the uh, Constitution calls, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors. Mm. It's, as I said, not proper, but it does. It isn't something, you know. If you think about it, there've been more, more serious scandals. There's been, you know, you think about what presidents have done in office, FDR and the internment of. Japanese Americans, yeah. uh, even more recently, Obama. I mean, he said that he would go to Congress before engaging in any foreign wars, and then he ignored that and attacked Libya. And 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 we know how that decimated the country. So there have been lots of things that are more substantial. And I think the fact that there's only been three impeachments in U.S. history, you know, shows that this is really intended to be a, a rare event, and it's something that you, you it's kind of, I, I think I might consider it kind of like a nuclear option. It's kind of there, yeah. but you're not meant to use it. And the reason is not only because it's serious and, and it should only be used for serious crimes or other uh, other uh, actions, but also that it's because it's, it's so serious because it's overturning the, the vote of the people. And that's and that's really something that the founders didn't want impeachment to turn out to be. I think that the Democrats are just too flippant. They're too easily willing to go to this. And, you know, all the time they'll talk about Trump violating democratic norms. But this is one of the most sacred democratic norm, right, is that you don't overturn an election. Yeah. And that's where it kind of appears as if the Democrats are. Are, are trying to do here. Brendan, what is your thoughts on this? Yeah, I really agree with Sean's last comment there about the way in which impeachment is being used in in an improper way. And it's always been around as this kind of permanent threat hanging over Trump ever since he came to office. You know, at his inauguration, people were waving pro-impeachment placards, mm-hmm. you know, some saying just impeach him. Uh, and that was, you know, flimsily related to supposed clash of business interests and political interests and so on. In 2017, when he dismissed FBI Director James Comey, there was talk among some Congress people about being in a pre-impeachment moment. And mm. they talked about an impeachment clock and possibly moving forward towards impeachable behavior at some point. So they've, they've had this sense constantly that he will 
be impeachable and he must be impeached and even over things that don't meet the the standard of high crimes and misdemeanors at all so for example there was talk of impeaching him after he made those comments about mm. the alt-right rally in charlottesville yeah you know there are good guys on both sides or whatever his words were and you know people there were people who were saying this fails the test of moral leadership and therefore he should be impeached so pretty much everything. And it really just does smack off an attempt to thwart the fact that he won the election mm. and to reverse the result of the election. And it's very reminiscent, I think, of, of the moves by the establishment in the UK to block Brexit. It takes a different form. Um, you know, Brexit is being blocked in various legal, political, underhand ways. Whereas this is uh, about impeachment and having the actual Senate trial. But I think there's a similar process on both sides of the Atlantic where a populist vote has so infuriated the kind of old establishment that they are going to take extreme measures to try and overturn it. And also these legal machinations are kind of happening at the same time when, you know, elections should be imminent. I mean, in the UK, yeah. mm. they're literally denying us an election while, you know, pushing things through the Supreme Court. In America, you know, we know we have the 2020 election. That should be the opportunity to pass yeah. judgment on Trump. And in a way, they've probably got that in mind somewhat, just because I, th I think it's fair to say that it's very unlikely that an impeachment process would be successful as far as it just wouldn't get through the Senate. I think you'd need basically all Democrats and 20 Republicans mm. to revolt effectively to make that happen. But I think there's a sense that if nothing else, this will just remind the electorate of everything they might dislike about Trump or everything that's bad about Trump, because he is crooked. Yeah. He is this kind of, you know, pound shop version of a mob boss, if you listen, if you look <laughs> <laughs> the transcripts of that tape and all the rest of it all these things are true but at the same time i think there's also um a huge danger with that strategy for the democrats is that this whole process will remind a lot of people what they don't like about the democrats it plays mm. very much into the sense which is you know completely earned which is that they're just obsessed with getting rid of trump at all costs that they're hysterical in the face of any kind of accusation of impropriety and i thought it was interesting as well in the week damon linker wrote a piece about what this might do to the democratic establishment's favored candidate joe biden insofar yeah. as obviously this all starts with rudy giuliani trump's lawyer going on this kind of fishing expedition to ukraine to try and you know turn up some cases of impropriety in relation to joe biden and his son who is employed um to the tune of, I think, I think something like $50,000 a month by a kind of Ukrainian energy conglomerate. Now, that was a fishing expedition. There's not really been any hard evidence necessarily put forward. But as Lincoln makes the point, it does remind people that people like Biden are part of this kind of very elite group of people whose sons can get gainfully employed for no other reason than being their son. You know, mm. and it kind of adds to that kind of sense as well, that the Democrats are that combination of madly anti-Trump and also creatures of the swamp if you want to put it that way so it's a, it's a very high risk strategy but i completely agree that even though that calculation is probably being made we all know where the fury and the passion with which people are calling to impeach trump is coming from it's coming from that refusal to accept the 2016 vote and the desperation to get him out at all costs you know and i think that is clearly what's driving so much of this yeah, and I suppose the thing they have to worry about is, um, you know, does it does it reinforce that idea of them as the, as the swamp, as you are saying? And how will how will Trump respond? I mean, so far he seems to be responding quite irrationally. That press <laughs> as, conference, yeah, as we as we'd expect. Um, a very strange press conference where he refused to answer questions and instead directed <laughs> reporters to ask the um, president of Finland questions <laughs> instead. He's gone around accusing the head of the House Intelligence Committee of committing treason and asking for him to be put on trial. He's going off on one about the whistleblower trying to shoot the messenger. I mean, the question is whether this plays to Trump's base or simply, you know, does it does this just rile up the people it would normally rile up or, or, or will this actually, you know, have any effect on Trump's credibility? 
I mean, uh, Sean, have you got anything else you want to add before we before we move on? Well, I think, yeah, as you were saying, it's kind of interesting to see how this might play out politically. Um, I think we just don't know, I guess, what could come out of it over the next weeks and months. You know, already this past week, as you were re- referencing, Frazier, there's been you know, new, new items have come out. Trump has responded, in, you know, in his usually unhinged way. And you just don't know. But, you know, the most likely scenario would be that Trump would not be removed by the Senate. Mm. And so, you know, the whole saying around, you know, if you strike at the king, you better kill him. Um, he, he'll, you know, could could emerge somewhat stronger. I think the Democrats are hoping that even if that happens, and Trump remains in power, that he'll be further tarnished and through the whole process. But I, I'm not so sure that that's necessarily the case. I mean, right now, it, the polls show that the numbers uh, agree with having an impeachment investigation have, have crept up to be a slight majority. Um, but they're not asking around whether the Trump should be impeached. It's whether there should be an investigation. And still, it just shows the kind of country very much divided. So I think there's a lot that could happen. But it, I think it is worrying the ease with which you can be presented to override an election in this way. And as you, as you said, you know, with just the November 2020 election around the corner. That was Sean Collins, Spikes US correspondent. You're listening to the Spiked podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, is taking legal action against the Mail on Sunday for publishing a letter she wrote to her father. To coincide with the legal action, her husband, Prince Harry, has launched a blistering attack on the tabloid press, accusing the papers of running a ruthless campaign against his wife. He says the papers print false and malicious stories and are full of continual misrepresentations. Brendan, what do you make of this royal assault on the press? I think it's outrageous. I think it's really genuinely quite shocking. It's unprecedented as well, the the explicitness of it. I mean, you know, for a long time in this country, the press pretty much did what the royals wanted them to do. And there was an understanding, certainly pre-1960s, which is really the decade when the royal family modernizes to a certain extent. But pre-1960s, there was an understanding that if the press was ever critical of a royal personage, they would suffer some consequence. Usually they would be um, denied entry to royal events or they would stop getting invitations to social events and and they wouldn't have the same access to institutions that they once had. So that was the way in which people were, journalists were kept in order and forced to report only happy stories about the royal family. We now seem to have a situation where some royals, the the supposedly woke royals, um, particularly Harry and Meghan, want to go back to that situation where they can dictate to the media using public pressure and public shaming to tell them what they can say about this royal couple. 
Um, Harry Stamen, I think, is the most ill-advised thing I can remember a royal person doing for years and years. It's so unbelievably stupid um, because what he actually admits is that even though they're only taking one legal case, which is against the Mail on Sunday, for publishing a letter that was given to the Mail on Sunday by Meghan Markle's father. So the, it, the Mail on Sunday did not get this letter in an underhand way. It got it from the owner of the letter. So as far as I'm concerned, they haven't got a leg to stand on when they're suing the Mail on Sunday. But they make clear that they're just taking this one action, but the broader aim is to tackle a tabloid culture, is mm. to tackle the newspapers more broadly, is to tackle what Harry clearly looks down upon in his incredibly snooty way as the kind of low-rent press with their tittle-tattle and their scandalous stories and their criticisms of Meghan Markle's stupid, woke politics. So uh, they're admitting that they're using the law to achieve a broader social aim of censorship. Um, most people try and keep that kind of thing secret, even when they're actually, <laughs> yeah. even the, when you yeah. know that's what they're doing, even when you know they're taking this one case in order to chill the media more broadly. Harry has admitted it, yeah. which I guess is good in a sense, because we all now know what they're doing. They're mm. using their royal power to crush media freedom. But I just wonder where are his advisors who might have said to him, you know, let's keep this on the down low. Let's not be so open about the tyrannical thing we're trying to achieve. I think it's ridiculous and perverse. The fact that he's being cheered, that he and Meghan mm. are being cheered by sections of the liberal elite, I find really, really quite sinister. Mm. It's, it's interesting as well because press freedom, particularly in this country, is literally built on the freedom to take the mick and to report on royalty. That's yeah. kind of where it comes from. <laughs> Obviously, John Wilkes, great hero of Spikes in the 1760s, you know, constantly risking prosecution for seditious libel with his newspaper, The North Britain, you know, running stories which heavily hinted that the Prime Minister was involved with the King's mother, you know, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> That's really where it comes from. And I think it does say something about where we're at, that you have supposed left-wingers and, and liberals and radicals even uh, siding with the Crown, effectively, yeah. <laughs> in, in these kinds of of battles. And it's something that we've talked about a long time, which is that because the Sussexes have presented the kind of criticism and the kind of ribbing that Meghan and Harry have got in the tabloid press quite effectively as kind of a, an outgrowth of the press's racism and terribleness. Yeah. Um, even though there's, you know, we can go into the particular allegations, but there's really no sound basis on which to make that accusation. They have been able to kind of co-opt a certain section of society who otherwise would probably think of themselves as quite Republican, quite mm. critical of monarchy, etc. And it's just amazing how in a way, fickle people's, you know, supposed principles are when presented with a victim, you know, even a victim who is literally part of the monarchy. I think it's yeah. so, so strange. And we've, we've come back to it so many times in this podcast, but it is just the way in which identity politics, despite the fact it bangs on about privilege and who is and isn't privileged all the time, can be used as a kind of force field for people of real, real privilege. Because if you can make some sort of attractive claim to victimhood, then a lot of people will rally behind you, even if you're you know, literally part of the royal family. Yeah, I mean, like the supposedly socialist, supposedly Republican um, Owen Jones said of uh, Meghan Markle, like any victim of racism, she deserves our solidarity. Now, I've never in my life wanted to show any solidarity <laughs> for the royal family. That's an interesting point because she's not a victim of press racism. No, mm. there's just or no intrusion or intrusion. Even I mean, it's become such a just truism in this debate that Meghan is singled out because of her race. There's no evidence of that. You no. know, people point to this old male story in which they talk about her mother actually living quite close to Compton in California, and then there's a kind of cheeky headline about you know Harry's new girl is almost straight out of Compton or whatever. You read the story; they would have written the same thing if Harry had chosen as a wife someone who's from a white working class girl from Moss Side. It's about culture yeah. clashes. Mm. It's a really you know, there's nothing really to that. 
people kind of cherry pick certain comments other people have made but the most of it is an imputing of motive it's rather than actually reading what people's criticisms are and there are many reasons to criticize the sussexes their you know performative wokeness and virtue signaling and you know hypocrisy on the eco stuff all that's well made rather than taking those criticisms as they are there's just this kind of response of oh i know why you're doing that it's Mm. an it's an incredibly ugly debate and in the process of it you are you know shielding these people who are in positions of inherited privilege from criticism i think one of the uh, one of the most striking things is how brilliantly wokeness lends itself to the preservation of monarchical privilege Mm. and there's such a close relationship between those two things which should terrify anyone on the woke left but you know it's i think we're seeing a shift in the monarchy i think it's happening quite accidentally i don't think anyone is consciously driving it in this direction but we are seeing a shift from the idea of a kind of a God-given right to rule, which mm. is what s- sustained the monarchy for a very, very long time, towards this kind of justification of monarchical privilege on the basis of wokeness, political correctness, feeling in touch, wanting to help the mentally ill public. I mean, if you look at the four young royals, Kate and William and, and Harry and Meghan, they're obsessed with relating to people as victims of mental health, which I think is represents a redefinition of us away from being subjects of the crown, which was bad enough, towards being patients of the crown, who must be looked after by these four wise people. And we're seeing a, a redefinition of the censorious nature of the monarchy away from protecting this godly person from the slings and barbs of ordinary mortals towards protecting these victims, you know, Harry and Meghan as the supposed victims of racism and press intrusion, protecting them from the the, the lowly tabloids. So uh, I think a, an important shift is taking place and a, a re-justification of the monarchy and of its power to determine how people should think and what people should say. I think that should worry everyone who, like Spiked, believes that we should live in a republic of Britain and that there should be no hereditary privilege whatsoever and that the head of state should be elected. I mean, this is such a a rudimentary democratic demand that if there is going to be a head of state, it needs to be someone that we can eject from power. Mm. You know, we will shortly have, soon have, King Charles III, who, if anything, is even worse than Meghan Markle, banging on about the environment all the time and writing letters to ministers and demanding that they do this and do that. And we can do nothing to get rid of him. So um, I think the broader question in all of this is why the hell are we still putting up with these people and when are we going to get rid of the monarchy and have a more democratic system you're listening to the spiked podcast if you haven't already don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode you can subscribe to the podcast through itunes google play spotify stitcher and more And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Using your forefinger and thumb to form an OK sign might seem innocent enough. But according to the Anti-Defamation League, an NGO set up to tackle anti-Semitism, the OK hand gesture has been appropriated by racists. The charity added it to its list of hate symbols alongside the swastika and the burning cross of the KKK. While the ADL admits that overwhelming usage of the hand gesture is still to show approval or that someone is okay, it can be, it says, a sincere expression of white supremacy. Tom, what's going on here? Well, there's a lot to understand. (laughs) And a lot of it revolves around internet culture. Um, It's it's a strange one because 
the, the thing about the OK symbol, and this is well established now, is that this really started as a kind of joke on 4chan, that message board mm. where all kinds of crazy things originate, where, again, they thought, we'll take this innocent gesture, which therefore you will see loads of politicians, loads of people in public life, police officers or whatever, doing this this gesture. And if we put this rumour out that that's a coded way of signalling white supremacy, then we're just going to drive everyone on Twitter crazy. That's where it really started. Now, in turn, you did actually see... Um, the alt-right, white supremacists, white identitarians adopt this, you know. So w- whilst on the one hand you had the kind of trolly people who wanted to convince liberals that loads of people were white supremacists, you also see actual white supremacists for if they're going to go along with this, we might as well inflate our own position at the same time. So it's, it's worth recognising that there is some truth to mm. saying that there are some racist scumbags out there who do make this symbol and kind of mean it in some way, shape or form. But again, the broader context here is this plays directly into that game. You know, yeah. the thing about the alt-right in America and across the world is that this is still a very marginal movement. Now, obviously, there's people, adherents to it, people influenced by it who have committed horrendous atrocities recently. We can't take that seriously enough. But at the same time, they rely a lot on the way in which the media inflates their importance, the way in which for a period of time Richard Spencer was became this incredibly huge figure where, you know, more protesters and attendees would turn up to any of his meetings. You know, mm. the desperation for the racist right to be a far more powerful force in public life than it actually is leads the media and other people to inflate its importance. And in a weird kind of way, this whole trolly, tongue-in-cheek thing around the OK symbol, which is now being taken very, very seriously, is a perfect example of that. And why you can't feed into that kind of narrative and why it's dangerous to do so. Yeah, and I, I think it's really important to underscore just how marginal, you know, these white supremacist movements are, even if, as you say, they can be dangerous. I mean, the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville um, several years ago was probably the biggest, yeah. you know, white supremacist event in the last decade, but that only drew a few hundred people. And then it, there was a follow-up, Unite the Right 2.0, a year later, far more counter-protesters, as you say, yeah. showed up to that. Richard Spencer, who you've, who you've mentioned, arguably the most famous white supremacist, has around 77,000 Twitter followers, not exactly, you know, mind-blowing in terms of this, his, his followership. So I think it's really important to underscore that we are talking about people who are, who are marginal. And as you say, you know, their influence is only being, is being overstated and they're, they're being um, puffed up by these allegations that uh, everyone is a racist. Yeah, I think, you know, we shouldn't be around the bush. We're living through a panic uh, it's a moral panic about white supremacy. Now, when you say something's a moral panic, people will think you say, you're saying that the thing doesn't exist. I'm not saying that at all. Of course, there are white supremacists, very small numbers of them. Some of them are a serious threat to people's lives, as we've seen in a, a, a small number of attacks over the past couple of years. But this is an infinitesimally small movement and it doesn't have any real influence in the public sphere at all it's a panic and you can see the panic in the way that their threat is exaggerated the way that their symbols are seen as these as these all-powerful codes which are kind of corrupting young people's minds in particular and you see these articles is your is your teenager becoming a white supremacist i mean it's real straight out of the 1950s except it's now white supremacists instead of communists really just a, a moral panic and it's so interesting to contrast the response to white supremacy and the white supremacist threat with the discussion of the Islamist threat. Now, I don't want to exaggerate the Islamist threat either because over the past year or so, it does seem to have fallen away to some extent. But, uh, you know, these two things are incomparable in the sense of the enormous impact that the Islamist threat had on Western society for a number of years, uh, 500 deaths in Europe over about four or five years, which is an astonishing number. 
in comparison to the white supremacist threat, which is much smaller. I always thought it's so striking that people talk about the Charlottesville attack, which was the use of a vehicle for terroristic purposes, which killed one person, and never mentioned the hundred plus people who've been killed by vehicle attacks in Europe mm. um, over the same time frame. You know, scores and scores of people killed, and they're never mentioned in the discussion of the rise of political extremism or the the rise of political violence. So I think that double standard is fascinating. And I think what we need to do in relation to all these threats is to get them into perspective, talk about them honestly. And if we do that, we'll realize that people going around doing the OK sign or a handful of dickheads doing, you know, the Z Kyle salute or, you know, people on 4chan making comments that you don't know if they're serious or unserious. This is not the end of civilization. We have to get it in perspective and treat them with the contempt that they deserve and it's a question of proportion on some level I thought the, that period in which richard spencer was never off television i thought was really fascinating because you almost felt like you know his profile was at the very least 60 70 percent about the media's desperation for him to exist mm. you know he had yeah. to be there as a sign of this kind of rotten white supremacy underpinning the trump moment and all the rest of it and it's a question of proportion now of course when you are greeted with a couple hundred racists marching down the streets that's going to concern you and people are going to be upset about that and people are going to want to protest it but at the same time there is a point at which you just have to ridicule these people like I remember when I think it was at the University of Florida Richard Spencer was giving this talk a couple of years ago the state spent something like half a million dollars you know on security and all the rest of it so all these protests planned you see the thing attendees were in the dozens the protesters were in the hundreds and it was at moments like that I did think to myself would it not be a bit more appropriate to just let him and the rest of these losers Z Kyle to each other in drafty rooms by themselves. Is that <laughs> yeah. not a better way um, forward? But it's also worth recognising that maybe this is less, probably less true of the kind of real white supremacist right, but particularly the hard right and some very unsavoury characters there is that they really trade on this idea that mm. the, of hysteria about racism. The way in which, and it's it's true, this thing that they're exploiting, that there's been this big blurring of the lines between what racism is and isn't. You know, as soon as someone likes Brexit or isn't too keen on open borders, suddenly they're a horrendous person. They trade on that narrative all the time. They use it as a kind of cover for their own bigotries a lot of the time. So the more that is being done to feed that hysteria is actually going to make it very difficult to challenge these people to reveal what it is they're really about because they can continue to kind of benefit from that blurring of the lines which was which was had already been done by that hysteria and i think that's something that people have to take notice of you've been listening to the spike podcast if you've enjoyed the show why not give us a rating a review or even a donation we'll be back next week but for more great spiked content just go to spiked-online.com